If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As Larry said, my name is Devin Coughlin. I serve as one of the, uh, one of the pastors here, along with Larry. And uh, it is a joy to be able to come together and, uh, and sing together and pray together and hear God's Word together, receive God's Word together. Uh, growing up, there was a, uh, a phrase that typified much of my younger childhood, and um, uh, it was often on my lips, and it would particularly come out when I'd be playing with my brother and one of our neighbors, and we'd be playing whatever, basketball or wiffle ball or football or whatever it was, and something wouldn't go my way. And I would say, that's not fair. And to exact my revenge, I would just go home. I would say, like, if, if you're going to play unfair, then I'm done playing and you can't play either. So I'm out. Now, maybe that typified your childhood as well. Maybe it does typify your childhood now. Or perhaps uh, you've now grown, but you still find those words often on your lips. That's not fair. This idea of fairness is one that we come by quite naturally. And it especially rears its head when we are wronged. When someone does something bad to us. Something we don't think we deserve. We want payback. We want revenge. So little Johnny is over, two years old, playing with his truck in the corner. And little Billy comes over and takes it. What does Johnny do? Well, he's either going to take it back, maybe he's going to cry, or he's going to hit back. He wants his revenge. That's only fair. Nobody had to teach Johnny this. Instinctively, inside of him, he wants revenge for the wrong that was done to him. Because this is only fair. This instinct to seek revenge, to preserve fairness, again, it's something that, that... we come by quite naturally. And it can seem so right and so just in the moment. I enjoy following, following baseball, and, and inevitably every year at some point, there, is, there are two teams that are trying to exact revenge on the other because of some perceived offense. And so it normally takes the form of a pitcher throwing at a batter. And everybody pretends this isn't really what's happening, but that's really what's happening. And they're trying to exact revenge. Uh, and, and it's a just a kind of a part of the sport, a very natural thing that happens. Or, or when I'm driving sometimes, somebody does something, pulls out in front of me or cuts me off or is tailgating me, does something, and immediately in my mind I start to think, how can I re- exact revenge on this person? Like, how can I get back at them? So maybe I tailgate them. or And then you just start realizing, like, what am I doing? Like, this is, it doesn't help anything or anyone. This morning, Jesus has something to say to us about how we think about revenge or retribution. Now, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying over these last several weeks, Jesus has been giving this vision for a new way of life for those who follow him. He's saying, if you belong to my kingdom, then this is how then you will live. Because those who follow Jesus follow a king and belong to a kingdom that is decidedly different from the kings and kingdoms of this world. And Jesus is saying that, that blessing and happiness and flourishing, the good life, something that we all want, the good life is found in walking in the king's ways. Now the law that Jesus addresses in our text today, 
We've been going through this series of, of Jesus saying, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. The law that Jesus addresses in our text today contains the most well-known words of the sermon. And here again, Jesus turns to address the law that his hearers knew and probably thought they well understood. But Jesus intends to show them that its true meaning, as he is the one who has come, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus wants to show them what its true meaning is. So if you're there in Matthew 5, we're going to begin in verse 38. Let's look at the word of God together, his inerrant, infallible, sufficient word for us. Follow along with me as I read. And Jesus said to them, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word that we come before today. And Lord, may you open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds and give us the strength to live lives that are conformed to your life, uh, the life that we see in Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, walk through this text in just three very simple ways. We're going to look at the law and consider that for a moment. Then we're going to look at the principle that Jesus derives from this law. And then third, we're going to look at these four examples that Jesus gives. So this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that you have heard, it was given by God to the people of Israel for their good and for their protection. So Jesus did not come to abolish this law, but to commend the good in it and reorient our understanding of it. Now, it appears a few times in the Old Testament. We see it in Exodus 21 and in Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. It, this repeated utterance of this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, indicates its importance for Israel. And the reason God gave this law is in order to maintain a just society. And there are really two important ideas that we should keep in mind as we think about this law. The first is that it was put in place to limit revenge. It stopped people from going too far in retaliation and made sure that whatever consequence, whatever punishment that came would fit the crime that was committed. That's the first thing about this law. It restricts what can be done in response to a wrong. So if your tooth is knocked out in a fight, you can knock out their tooth as well. But you cannot cut off their hand because that would not be responding in kind. And you can see how helpful this law would have been and how much it protects society by keeping revenge from, from escalating. Because there comes a point where there's nothing more you can do besides kill the other person. And that's what happens. And you think of like, uh, I, was, I did a little research on the Hatfields and McCoys this past week. And it's just, I mean, killing after killing and revenge after revenge. It was all, it was revenge gone wild. But this law is meant to keep and limit revenge from escalating. So it's for people's protection. Now the second and very important idea, very important idea about this law that we have to get, is that this law was given for civil authorities, not for individual people. 
It was given for society, not for relationships. This law was given so that leaders could lead and judges could judge justly. This law was never about personal revenge, about taking justice into your own hands. It is not a guide. It's not to guide us in how we relate to others. And this became a big problem in Jesus' day. More and more an eye for an eye was seen as one's right in their relationships. So if you wrong me, I deserve, I have the right to wrong you in the same manner. It was used to justify even the smallest bits of revenge. And this can be our problem as well. Oh, you took my cookie? Well, I'm going to take yours. But sometimes we use this idea of an eye for an eye as our right for for everything to be fair. Mom, how come they got 10 M&Ms when I only got 8? Or maybe it's not right that they got the promotion when I've been there just as long and have done just as much work. We have a natural tendency to want this idea of of fairness, to, to insist that we get what we want. So we make much of our own rights, much of what we think we deserve, and we treat others then in kind. And Jesus addresses the problem of allowing this law to govern and direct personal relationships. And he gives a principle for the way his followers should, should relate to others in this world. And he says this, in the beginning of verse 39, he says, Do not resist the one who is evil. Now I want to be clear first that this is not, hopefully I'm clear the whole time, but I want to be clear on this point as well. <laughs> this is not a statement about governing authorities. It's not a political statement about police work today. It's not saying that evil should never be stopped. Now, whenever we come to Scripture, it's important that we read it in its own context and in light of what the whole of Scripture teaches. The Bible has a lot to say on the topic of governing authorities opposing evil. But that's not a part of this text. It's not a part of this context. What Jesus is interested in here is speaking to how his disciples relate to others on a personal level. It's about how individuals respond to personal wrongs, to personal injustices. And the principle that Jesus lays out here is really twofold. The first part of it is that we should not insist on our own rights. We should not insist on our own rights. And the second part is that we should consider the interests of others before our own. Now, living this way sets the followers of Jesus apart from others. It's how they are to be salt and light in the world. Jesus is not saying that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth doesn't matter anymore. It does in its right context. And Jesus is affirming the goodness of the command and then saying, you don't need to take revenge into your own hands. Consider the example of David. David serves in Saul's court. He delivers Israel from the Philistines. He defeats Goliath. We know that story. David beats, the, beats Goliath. But Saul is ultimately envious and bitter about all of David's success. And he plots again and again to kill David. Now David has been living a life on the run. And we come to this in 1 Samuel 24. And he ends up in the wilderness of En Gedi. And while he's hiding in a cave, he has this opportunity to exact revenge on Saul. He has the opportunity to pay back Saul for all the wrong he has done to him. And David's followers are egging him on. They're saying, do it, David, do it. Now's your chance. 
David wants to pay him back for, David has the opportunity to pay him back for the injustice, for the trauma, for the abuse that he has suffered at the hands of Saul. But David doesn't act. He doesn't kill Saul, but he spares him. And this is what David says to Saul. He says, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David wants justice. He wants vengeance. But he knows it's in the Lord's hands entirely. He doesn't see himself as this self-justified distributor of justice. But he lets God be the one who rules and reigns. He lets God be the one who will one day make all things right. Romans twelve nineteen says it this way. He says, Paul says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil, what he is saying is, Trust me and the authorities that I have ordained to carry out justice, but do not take it into your own hands. What Jesus calls his followers to goes against the current of the world around us. It goes against the current that's often in our hearts. It goes against our impulses to seek revenge. Jesus is saying that it's often right to allow yourself to be wronged. It can be the just thing to not go after your own justice. This, this is crazy. This is what Jesus is saying. It's the right thing often to allow yourself to be wronged. It is the just thing sometimes to not go after your own justice. This upside down way of living, it sounds an awful lot like the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew 5. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And this word blessed, the connotation is happiness and flourishing, fullness of life. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessing in life, flourishing in happiness, the path to the good life, all of this is not found where we expect it. Because the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdoms of this world. What God calls his people to, it defies the values of this world. While the world insists that you have a right to get your own way, that the best thing you can do is to live for yourself, Jesus says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And in our text, Jesus then provides four illustrations of this principle to not insist on your own rights, but to instead consider the interests of others as more important than your own. Now, it's important to note that none of these illustrations are laws to live by. But they present a, a picture. They're illustrations for us of a certain set of values. Uh, they portray a distinct way of being in the world for those who are in Christ. Jesus gives us what one commentator says is a, a vision of virtue, not a list of maxims to live by. So as we go through these four examples, look to the principles in these words, bearing in mind that Scripture says a lot more about how we are to live in this world than just these words. Now, it would certainly be easier for all of us if these words were ultimatums and we could apply to every circumstance and every situation of our lives without distinction. But this is not what God calls us to. Jesus is wisdom personified, and he calls us to walk in that wisdom. 
One commentator said this this way. He says, no matter how much we wish to follow Jesus seriously, we discover sooner or later that seriously following Jesus entails hard thinking about what he said and what he did not say. We don't want to misrepresent what Jesus says, but we want to apply the wisdom of his word to our lives. So we're going to do that as we look at these four examples together. Now, the first example we come to at the end of verse 39 is this, turn the other cheek. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, what Jesus is speaking to is how to respond to an insult. To turn the other cheek, then, isn't speaking so much about personal injury, which we might think, but it's about honor and dishonor. Jesus is not saying that if your brother punches you, give him your left arm as well. It's not what Jesus is saying. Because in first century Palestine, the context that Jesus is speaking, one's own honor and dignity, it was one of the most important aspects about you. And a slap to the face was a way of bringing a tremendous amount of dishonor and disrespect on someone. It was really the height of insults. And Jesus is saying, when, when someone insults you, don't insult them back. Don't insist on your right to retaliate. Don't insist on your own honor. And for the Christian, we have no fear of insults. We have no worry about dishonor because your reputation, if you have hoped in Jesus Christ, your reputation, your life is in Jesus Christ. You are a son or daughter of God. Who cares what someone else says? So when someone insults you, respond as God your Father has responded to you and the insult of your sin. How, does, how has he responded? He sent his own son to take your place. He responded with mercy and grace, so respond in kind. If someone calls you a name, don't call them a name back. Instead, respond in grace. Treat them with love and kindness. Now, I do need to point out what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying to allow anyone to do whatever they want to do to you. This is about how one responds to insult, not abuse. If someone attacks you, it's not love to allow them to attack you more. Loving that other person will mean preventing further attacks. Love may mean taking steps to remove yourself from that relationship. This is the place where wisdom is to be applied. Again, Jesus is not giving us a law to live by in every situation. He is providing an example of what it looks like to no longer cling to your right to honor. That's the first example. Turn the other cheek. The second example Jesus gives is let him have your cloak. We see this in verse 40. He says, and if anyone would sue you, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now a tunic is the shirt that was worn under your cloak. And it was a common thing for everyone to have. And Jesus is speaking of a situation where you have wronged someone and they're seeking damages through the courts. And to sue for one's tunic was an appropriate way to make something right. But the cloak, that was a privileged possession. And one that no one had a right to take and keep. It didn't matter how poor or how in debt you were to someone else, they could not keep your cloak. Sometimes a cloak was used as a a pledge or a guarantee of something. So if I wanted to borrow your cow, Paul Rohr, I might give you my cloak. But you would have to give it to me that night. This is what it says in Exodus 22. 
If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? The cloak was used in this context for protection and for warmth. And God put laws in place that ensured that people, no matter how poor, no matter how uh, in debt they were, that they could keep their cloaks. But here Jesus says that if you owe someone, be prepared and willing to part, even with that which they have no claim on, even with that which is most precious to you. What Jesus is saying is don't put your hope and confidence in what you have or in your legal rights. Be willing to forego all of this for my sake. The way of Jesus is, is a way that does not hold on to honor. It does not cling to rights, but willingly lets go of these things for the sake of Christ. That's the second example. The third example Jesus gives is go the extra mile. This is in verse 41. He says, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Jesus' listeners would have been well aware of what Jesus was referring to here. First century Palestine, it was occupied by Roman soldiers. And under the law, these soldiers had a right to force any person to carry their load, to carry their pack for them. It didn't matter what you were doing or where you were. You could be on your way out the door for a meeting or sitting down for a meal. You could be playing your favorite game or reading your favorite book. When they made the request, you had to go. For Jewish people who were proud of their identity and their land, this was a deeply offensive law. But they had no choice. If a soldier told you to, you had to go the mile with them. If anyone forces you to go one mile, they knew exactly what it was. But the law did not allow these soldiers to require any more than that one mile. Now the mile was a, it was a Roman measurement and it was about a thousand paces. That's a, it's kind of actually how we get our mile today. But you didn't have to go a step more than that. Once you went that mile, you were done. That mile was the limit. And I'm sure for these Jewish people how grateful they were for that limit. But Jesus tells his followers, when this happens, when someone inconveniences you or imposes upon you, go with them too. And keep in mind, this is something Jesus is saying about an enemy, not a friend. It's not like your friend asks you to help them move or your sister asks you to get them a book. This is the enemy who is in your home, insisting that you go and do this for them. And Jesus says, don't just obey joyfully. Go beyond what's required. Go twice as far as you have to. Carry the load one more mile. Now this well applies to us all, but we should be those who are willing to be imposed upon. We, are, we should be those who willingly and joyfully give of our energy and time in order to show that you are submitted to another king. You are committed to doing what is unexpected because the grace you have received overflows to all those around you. And one of my children provided a great example of the opposite of this principle just last night. And we were sitting down at dinner and I asked if they could clear the table. So they began clearing the table. And I then suggested that, you know what, maybe you could even do the dishes. I don't know if I suggested, I can't remember. And they responded by saying, oh, that would be just too much. For those who are in Christ, 
We don't say that would be too much. We want to go above and beyond what's required of us. Joyfully and willingly. That applies to children just as well as it applies to parents. We want to be those who, and all of us, if we're not children or parents, it applies to all of us. Uh, We are called to joyful obedience. uh, Right away, all the way and in a cheerful way. Whether we're two years old or 87 years old. This is what God has called us to. And what an opportunity we have as we have received grace from God to extend that grace to others by doing more than is required or expected. The fourth example Jesus gives is give to the one who begs. In verse 42 we read this. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And Jesus here is addressing our generosity or how we might cling to our money and our possessions. Now, it's remarkable to note, and you probably notice it as well, how Jesus' words, they're unconditional and unqualified. Give to those who beg from you. Do not refuse those who borrow from you. He's calling his followers to this unconditional generosity, this selflessness to those who ask. Now, if you are in Christ, your hope is not in what you have. So Jesus is saying, don't cling so tightly to it. Don't evaluate every situation you encounter based on what's in it for you or on what you can get out of it. Instead, show with your generosity that you are a citizen of another kingdom, a heavenly one. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now again, it's important to remember that this is not the only thing that God says about generosity and giving to the poor. Perhaps if you gave to everyone who asks, you would have nothing left to give to those you were responsible to care for. And sadly, there are many in the history of the church who made themselves destitute and were unable to care for those who they were called to care for uh, because they took this to the extreme without taking into account what else Scripture says. We need wisdom in our generosity. But our disposition should always be to joyfully and willingly extend grace. And not reject people, because that is what God has done for us. Now, it may not be right for us to give to someone exactly what they ask for. So kids, you may be thinking, well, I'm poor, and my parents should give me whatever I beg for. So if I beg for that toy or ice cream or candy at every meal, they have to give it to me. Let me be clear, that is not what this verse is saying. It's not what this verse means. But that said, parents, let your disposition be one that joyfully and willingly blesses your children. And church, let us be a people that is marked by that same generosity, joyful and willingness, willing generosity. The call that Jesus puts on us is significant. And Jesus makes very clear in his words in this text how significant it is. It should make us all feel a little bit comfortable as we look at these examples. And that that. Uh, thought that you had as I went through these four examples about that one area, that one circumstance, you're like, nah. I think the Lord probably wants you to feel a little bit uncomfortable about that and stretch you as you look to his word, confront you with his word. His his word is uh, sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what Hebrews 2 says. And it pierces to our hearts. That's what his word does. But Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised as his followers, as if he wins us by promising one thing only to require much, much more. 
Now, Jesus is telling us exactly how the lives of those who follow him should look. He's giving us this grand vision of virtue, this cross ethic, this way of being in the world that's decidedly different from the world around us. Now, there are times that we commit ourselves to something without realizing fully what we're committing to. It happens. It might happen when you tell that friend that you'll help them move, thinking that, oh, yeah, I'll be out of there in two hours, and you end up being there for two days. But that hasn't happened to anybody that I've helped move here, just in case you're wondering. Don't, I don't want to give anybody a false impression. Uh, I know when I got married, for me, I always thought of marriage as something that at some level was about me, about meeting my needs, about my self-fulfillment. Now, I heard to the contrary often. I heard, I knew, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It didn't matter how that I knew this. It didn't matter how many times I heard it. I still tended to think that marriage was about me. And now I've been married over 15 years, and I can still at times think that marriage is about me. Although I hope by God's grace I'm learning to lay down my life more and more for my wife and children every day. But my marriage is not about me. And for the Christian, it's the same. Your life is no longer your own. This is what all of Jesus' examples illustrate for us. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you belong to him, if you are his disciple, then you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus makes this very clear. To be a Christian is not some nutritional supplement to make you a better you. You're not given this gift of salvation as if you're upgrading to a better operating system. God didn't save you to make you a better version of yourself. You are saved in order to become a new person. Ephesians 2 says it this way, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. But God has made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In Luke 9, 23 and 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Now we read these words after we know the story of Christ's death and resurrection. The people that heard these words did not know that Jesus was going to die on a cross. And that he would be raised after three days. To them a cross was an instrument of torture and death. And Jesus is saying take up your cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. These ideas, these phrases, take up your cross, lose your life, they're repeated multiple times in each gospel. Jesus sounded this message loud and clear to his followers. Now the same thing is echoed in the ministry of Paul. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This truth has massive implications on your life. And this is exactly what Jesus is addressing in each of these examples. He's presenting a different way of being in the world. He's presenting another value system. He's saying that if you're my disciple, then you're going to live this way. You won't be holding on to your rights, but you will lay them down. You won't put your confidence in your honor and your dignity before others. 
You won't be ruled by what other people think about you. You won't cling to your possessions or your time or your energy or your money or your gifts as if they were your own. But you will willingly and generously, joyfully, unselfishly, and unconditionally give of yourself to others for the sake of Jesus' name. For all those in Christ, self-denial and self-sacrifice takes the place of revenge and retribution. Self-denial takes the place of revenge. So how do we do this? I just want to make one simple point here. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't just call his disciples to live this way. He lived this way. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Even though he was God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He gave up his honor. He gave up his rights. He gave up his life for our sake. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.23. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Dying to sin and living to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. We have no hope in anything that we have done, anything that we can do, anything that we might do. Our only hope is in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and have not put your trust in Jesus, he invites you to come, to turn to him, to, put your, to, to deny yourself, to deny everything that you have held to and put your hope in, and put your trust in him that you might by his wounds be healed. Brothers and sisters, see the unmatched and unfailing love of God displayed in Jesus Christ. He gave himself up for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son. We learn to give up our rights to consider the interests of others by looking to the life of Jesus and the love of God put on display as he dies for us. In John's letter, in 1 John, he, he writes of this love, and he says that God is love. And then this is what he says in 1 John 4, 9-11. through 11. I'm going to close with this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He took on the wrath of God in our place. Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. That's our response to what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the love of God displayed in the death of Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your son to take our place. Thank you that Jesus came and, and lived this life that we could not live apart from your spirit.
You died the death that we deserve to die. And now, by his death, we have life. Through his resurrection, we have this power to obey, to live as those who are salt and light in the world. Lord, would you give us grace to do that? And Lord, for any who have not put their hope and trust in you, Lord, would today be a day of salvation for them? Lord, would they look to you and trust the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf? And would they find new life in you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.